Thank you, David. Good morning, Arcadia. Happy Father's Day. We are glad that you are here. Uh, Luke uh, Simmons, who is our uh, congregational pastor at Gateway, mentioned this morning that um, in God's infinite calendar humor that this would happen to be our passage on Father's Day. So it's just kind of a weird topic to be doing on, on Father's Day. So welcome if this is your first time here. Uh, we are in the book of Romans. If you could open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. It's not that we're going to be in chapter 3. It's just the easiest way to get to the passage that we're at. We're going to be in the last five verses of chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, if you could do that. Also, uh, it is Father's Day, and so we always have sodas and drinks and stuff for uh, the dads in the, in the lobby. So if you're, if you're thirsty, you need a root beer or something, please uh, grab something. Grab something on the way out if you haven't already uh, taken one. So we are continuing in Romans. It's interesting, I was counting up. This is our 12th week in Romans. And, and we're just finishing chapter 2. So if you weren't sure if we were serious about how long we were going to spend in Romans, you, you probably know we're serious now. Two, 12 weeks in order to do two chapters, and the rumor is, is that we're going to slow down now. So um, it could get a little bit slower. Um, I, I, think it's, I think it's been good, though, but, but one of the things that has been challenging is that this is now our eighth week, this week, of dealing with that section from Romans 1.18 through Romans 3.20, where, it, again, in the words of, of Luke, it's just Paul kind of going, you suck, you suck, you suck, you suck. I mean, you just, you're just, you're, you're, you got a problem. If you don't have Jesus in your life, you are in desperate trouble. He starts by telling us that we're sinners and that we actively suppress the truth and that we make excuses for ourselves, but we are, out, we are without excuse. Everybody is without excuse. And then he starts to line list all the different things that we try to do to excuse ourselves. He says, look, <clears throat> wonderful moral knowledge isn't going to help you or save you. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you have good deeds or good works apart from Jesus Christ. That means nothing. Works will never save you. Only the finished work of Christ can save you. And, and then he even talks about you know, you know, being part of a religious society, whether it's the, uh, as the Old Testament covenant people of Israel or, or in the New Testament church. E- even that doesn't save you if you don't know Jesus. You, you can be a part of that and you can be associated with that and, and, and all of that stuff, but if you don't know Jesus, you've got problems. So, so it's been tough, it's been, it's been difficult, but Paul is simply trying to be thorough. He is trying to close every possible loophole that you and I can think of that, that'll, in our minds, get us off the hook when we have to stand before God. And, and, and when we do stand before God, God's going to ask one question, do you know Jesus Christ? That's it. And so Paul is just being thorough, he's trying to close every loophole. But one of the challenges is, is that anytime any person's goodness is questioned, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, it doesn't matter. There's just something about when our goodness is questioned, we tend to get defensive, we tend to get self-protective, we tend to put up that Teflon shield that sort of makes uh, any inquiry about our lives bounce off of us. And we'll throw everything in our defense uh, against that argument. And Paul knows this, and so he's just trying to be thorough. And we have a couple more weeks of this to go through to be able to make sure that, that, for Paul to be able to make sure that he has made his case, that he has made his argument as completely as possible. But here's the other thing that's really interesting about this. I mentioned it's going to take us nearly two years to go through the book of Romans. It's already taken us two weeks 
uh, uh, I'm sorry, 12 weeks to get through two chapters. I was having lunch with a friend of mine Thursday, and we were kind of talking about this, and he said, you know, it's really interesting. It's really good that we've been going deep, and that's been encouraging. He says, it's really good that we're taking time. Uh, I, I love the way we are unpacking all the nuances, and I've heard a lot of people say that. But he says, one of the really surprising things about this is that if you just sit down on your couch with no distractions and read the book of Romans from beginning to end straight through without taking notes and you just read it, and I don't mean reading it quickly, but reading it in a way that you're drinking it in, but you're not distracted by anything, it takes you about 30 minutes. 30 minutes. So on the one hand, we're going really, really deep and that's really good. But on the other hand, you should be able to read the book of Romans at least once a week with no sweat, 30 minutes. And by the end of this thing, you should really understand what many scholars have called the Gospel of Paul. Paul preaching and teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. That it is in Him that we find salvation. And so, last week, as as Paul continues this argument that we are without excuse apart from Jesus Christ... Uh, Sean came and gave us the message on verses 17 through 24 where Paul absolutely finally begins to address the Jews very directly. And in this, chapter, in, this, in this paragraph that Sean took care of last week, Paul anticipates the argument from the Jews in the church in Rome that they're going to say that because they have the law, they're saved. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We are the people of the written code. We are the people of God's law. We're the ones that, that have the five books of Moses. We have the prophets. We, we have the Hebrew Bible. And so we're saved. That's our excuse. We're the, we're the covenant people. And Sean showed us last week in his message how Paul just squashes that idea. He says, nope, that's a problem. Don't think like that. Then this week in verses 25 through 29, Paul anticipates one more argument specifically from the Jews where they're going to say, well, wait, 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 wait. We still have an ace up our sleeve. We still have the final say. We are the circumcision. We're the people who get circumcised and that's our pass. That's our get out of jail free card. That's our excuse. That's our way into the kingdom of God no matter what circumcision, the mark, the symbol, the sign of the covenant people. That's how we get in. And the Jews there really did believe this. Just like many people today believe that just by joining a church, they're going to get a pass from God. Well, it's been said a million times before, a million times before, just because you're standing in a garage, it doesn't make you a car. Just because you attend a church every week, just because you've joined a church, just because you've checked the little box, it doesn't necessarily make you a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ. In fact, I would suggest that sometimes some of the most challenging people to try to talk to about the gospel are people that are in church every single week. Because they think that somehow their association with church gets them a free pass. They really don't know Jesus, but they're in church. Another one is baptism. A lot of people will say, well, I was baptized. I'm okay. Do you know Jesus? I was baptized. Do you know Jesus? Well, I was was baptized as a child or as an infant or or at 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 a revival or something. You see, the, the faith has to be genuine, otherwise the baptism really doesn't have any value. And that's Paul's point in this paragraph. That's the big idea today. Outward signs, markings, symbols, or associations really have no value 
if the inward faith isn't genuine. Only Jesus saves us. So now we're going to slow down. We're going to go through this paragraph, these five verses, verse by verse. And then we're going to end with what I think is going to be a very challenging discussion about genuine faith being from our hearts and not something that we wear on the outside of our bodies. Okay? So Romans 2 Verse 25, Paul starts this paragraph by saying, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Again, there's no question here that Paul is addressing the Jews. And what he says here really isn't that complicated. He's saying, apart from genuine faith in Jesus, as a result of the gospel invading our lives, circumcision is of no value. And the same application is true for Christians. He would say the same thing about taking communion. You may go to a communion table and take communion, but if you don't know Jesus, you're just eating bread and drinking grape juice or wine. Whatever it is. Now, circumcision and and taking communion, they are marks and testimonies of something much bigger. They're important, but they're merely signs that point to something much bigger, and that would be your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These things don't save us. And if we think they do, but then behave in a way that betrays that we really don't know God and we really aren't indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then these signs and marks and symbols and associations really don't mean anything. They really don't have any value to us. In fact, it really just means you're a poser. I I got like a million examples of this because it happens all the time. Okay, Uh, it's the it's the person who has the Pilates bumper sticker, but they went to exactly two Pilates classes four years ago. Okay, they have a sign of Pilates. They have an association with Pilates, but Pilates is doing them absolutely no good because they really aren't a Pilatesist, if there is such a word. You get the meaning, okay? This morning, here, here's a good example, okay? This morning, I, I, I have no musical ability whatsoever, uh, ever, uh, other than to be a really bad judge of it, okay? I just, I'm, I'm not that musical. I don't play anything, and people pay me not to sing, okay? So this morning, Chelsea, who, who do, does the music for our children, uh, she, she always parks her car and she's got her guitar that she gets out and she carries her guitar in. Well, this morning she had a whole bunch of other stuff. So I saw her unpacking her car and I went out there and I said, hey, can I help you carry some stuff in? And she said, sure. And she hands me her guitar. Okay. So she grabs up everything else. So instantly I take the guitar and I get away from Chelsea and I'm walking down the street with a guitar case. Okay. Because I know, hey, look, I'm, I'm pretty cool. I can play. That's what, now, people who know me know that there is no ability whatsoever. But people who don't know me, like, oh, look, that dude plays a guitar. I have the sign of a guitar player, but I'm not really a guitar player, and it doesn't do me any good. By the way, it actually happened. Somebody downstairs said that I walked by the, <laughs> their room. They saw me with a guitar case, and they, the first thought was, oh, I didn't know Frank played the guitar. I am... Typical George Costanza. George Costanza was always doing that, if you ever watch Seinfeld. Remember, remember that episode where he, used to, <laughs> he always had the ski lift ticket on his jacket? He never went skiing, he just got a ski lift ticket. He said, girls like guys that can ski. He doesn't ski. Remember when he wanted to be a bad boy George? Remember the bad boy George episode? He got his father's 68 GTO and started wearing a leather coat around. Then the cops arrested him and took him down to the police station. He's crying at the police station. Bad boys don't cry at the police station. His marks and signs of being a bad boy did him no good in the police station. 
Dwight Schrute, he's a poser. Season 5, episode something. I don't know what it was, but he starts buying Cornell University stuff and wearing it around and has a Cornell University uh, mug. He's Dwight Schrute. He didn't go to Cornell. Only Andy could go to Cornell. Let anybody in there. Uh, Friday, I was talking to some really good friends in uh, Wichita. And we talk all the time. I know them from the camp up in Iowa. and, And we were talking and everything. And he likes to run marathons, and we, we run together when we're at camp and stuff. And so he got one of those stickers, one of, you know those stickers, the 26.2 sticker you put on your car. tells everybody that you've run a marathon, okay? So he put that on his car. So his wife's like, I want one of those stickers. Well, she doesn't even run to the restroom. I mean, I don't, she, you know, she doesn't run anywhere, okay? So he's like, no, you don't get to have one of the stickers, Okay. They said that they actually found this. I want one of these. This is the sticker I want. They have, they have a 0.0 sticker now. They, and he found one. And he put that on her car. Okay, And he says between the two of them, they're averaging a, a half marathon, 13.1. But you see Paul's point here. This is what he's getting at. We love all of this stuff on the outside. We love all the glitz and all the fancy markings that point at something that maybe really isn't us. And he says the same thing is, is true when it comes to Jesus. we got to be really careful. It's not that these things aren't important. It's not that they have no value. But without Jesus, they really don't. There's no significance without Jesus. Getting baptized, attending a church, the Lord's Supper, being confirmed, any of those things. They are important, but you got to have Jesus. But then Paul takes it up a notch in verse 26. He says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, now he's talking about, he's comparing Jews to Gentiles now. If a man who is uncircumcised, that would be a Gentile. If he keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That, that word be regarded as legizomai, which literally means in this case, doesn't it follow logically? Wouldn't it be the logical conclusion that if he's behaving like somebody who is a covenant person of God, wouldn't he be circumcised? So now he's really starting to challenge the Jews on this. And he's really getting into their face about this idea of circumcision, which is really offensive to these Jews. You have to understand, anytime you question this circumcision thing, it's very offensive to them. And Paul's simply saying, look, if you really know God the Father, you're going to start looking like Him. You're going to start behaving like Him at some point. There's going to be some transformation in your life. And I'm telling you, verse 25, there are few insults that Paul could direct at the Jews that are, that are worse than telling them that their circumcision has no value. But verse 26 is one of those insults. Now he's saying to them, look, these, in the Jews' mind, these second-rate, second-class citizens, these Gentiles that you loathe and always want to keep over there, do you understand that if their life betrays a life of covenant with God more than yours, they are in a sense putting you to shame. They're in a sense the real circumcision, the true circumcision. You've got to understand that is offensive to these Jews who are in the church at Rome. Now for us today, it would be like this. It's the person who never goes to church and, and wouldn't know the difference between Jesus and that piano over there. Yet, her life of compassion and service makes some of us baptized, church-going, communion-eating Christians look positively criminal. It's the atheist 
who outdoes us in love and honor and not just by a little bit. It's not that they have a ticket to the kingdom of God. That's not what we're saying. That only comes through Jesus. But rather, what happens is that their behavior is demonstrating that maybe you and I really don't have the ticket to God. Maybe you and I really don't understand who Jesus is. That's what Paul is getting at. He's saying, listen, you need to do some self-evaluation here. Don't just look at how everybody else behaves. You need to start looking at your own life here. And then he ratchets it up again in verse 27. It's like the paragraph goes like this. It's amazing. He says, Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. So the Jew who habitually breaks the law has become for all practical purposes an uncircumcised pagan. That's what uh, Paul is saying. Paul would say the same thing about baptism. He, He says, listen, the baptized person who shows no transformation in their life, it's as if they've never been dunked. You just need to understand that. It's as if it never happened to them. The one who takes communion yet doesn't follow Christ is no different than the person who doesn't participate in communion. Now, it's not, again, again, it's not that the sacraments aren't important. It's not that they aren't sacred. But they're not the reality of the faith itself. They merely point to the reality of the faith. If the fruit of our lives does not match the sign we carry around, then the sign is no longer significant. It's exactly what Sean said last week. Grace is essential, but works are inevitable. Once we have the grace, once the gospel has infiltrated our lives, our lives are going to start to change and we're going to start to look more and more like what we profess to know. In fact, Paul would say it goes even further than that. It's not just that. If our fruit doesn't match the sign, then the sign actually goes so far as to condemn us. It's Jesus quoting Isaiah 29 when he tells the Pharisees and the scribes, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Well, Paul wraps it up in the last two verses, 28 and 29, and he says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. The Greek word outward is phaneros, and it literally means apparently, but not necessarily. So, in other words, well, apparently, they are that kind of a person because they have all the signs, but not necessarily. We have not seen any actual behavior that betrays that those signs mean anything. That's what that word means there. So he says, no one's a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly. The word there is kruptos. It means on the, outs- on the inside without regard to anyone looking. It- it's the person who's not concerned with appearances, but is concerned with what's going on in the inside. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul is talking to any Jew who believes that simply by having circumcision, they're somehow justified in the eyes of God. And at the church of Rome, there were a bunch of those Jews. And so he's talking specifically to them. Paul explains that real circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. Real circumcision does not come from a mechanical, uh, to-do list observation of the law. But real circumcision is a work of the Spirit. Real circumcision is a work of the resurrected Christ in your life, and it's not by man, 
Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 5, which he wrote several years earlier than Romans, but it's the exact same idea. He says, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So he says, listen, real circumcision is not a ritualistic cutting away of some flesh, but rather it's the genuine cutting away of the nature of sin that is deep within our heart. It's something that happens on the inside of us. And those who have experienced true spiritual circumcision of the heart understand and are content to receive their praise only from God and not from man. In other words, the the person who truly knows Jesus is not worried about other people looking at him and and, and affirming him and, and being pleased with him, but he's looking for the quiet approval of God, the non fanfare approval of God. Another way to say it is that Paul is talking about reality. He's saying, What's really going on with your faith? When no one is looking, are you still the same person that you project your public persona to be? Or is your faith a faith in name only? In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 through 33, God is telling Jews through Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, the Babylonian exile prophet, he's saying, listen, if the, if, if the Jews think that they are saved simply because they are the people of God, simply because they have the law and circumcision and because they go to temple, God says, not so fast. Let me read the passage to you. You don't need to go there. Just listen to it. God is talking to Ezekiel. And he's telling him this. He says, listen, as for you, son of man, in this case, the reference to to son of man is he's talking about Ezekiel, the prophet. It it means the priest or the, the prophet or the pastor or the minister. He says, as for you, Ezekiel, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, they say to, to, to one another, each to his brother, they say, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. In other words, they go to temple to look right, but their behavior betrays that they don't know me at all. And then he says, and behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument for they hear what you say, but they do not do it. Here's what God is telling Ezekiel. He's saying, you know what? You're just a pretty good show for them. You're a bunch of entertainment for them on the Sabbath. That's all. They don't take you seriously. It's good for a little while and then they're off to something else. Nothing seeps into them. And then the last verse there, he says, when this comes and it will come, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. In other words, when they are confronted with the reality that they're really in trouble, they're going to they're gonna suddenly go, oh, maybe what Ezekiel was saying actually had some value. But it'll be too late by them because they hadn't appropriated it to their lives. So this is Paul's message to us as well today. There's a connection between this paragraph in Ezekiel 33 and what Paul says to us today. He says, if we come to church and think that simply by enduring the, the service and the preaching and the music and the, and the prayers and, and, and simply by enduring that, that somehow our, our association with that or, or our duty to do that is somehow going to get us into the kingdom of God, he says, no, it's not. You need to know Jesus. Those are signs and markings and they're important. You need to do this, but it's a result of the gospel working in your lives first and foremost. 
Uh, Here's how this paragraph could look or sound if we were to talk about it within the context of today. This is what Paul could write today. For baptism is indeed of value if Jesus is sanctifying you, if His Holy Spirit is in the process of transforming your old ways to new ways. But if you continue to live the same old way before you met Jesus, your baptism is unbaptism. So someone who has never been baptized but lives a life of holiness, will not that person's unbaptism be regarded as baptism? Then the one who has never been physically dunked in the water but pursues holiness will condemn you who have walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or checked a box, but you continue to live the same old way that you always have. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly, nor is true baptism outward and fleeting, but a Christian is one inwardly without regard to how it looks to others. And baptism is a matter of not just water, but of the heart, by the Holy Spirit, not by ritual. As a result... The one in Christ values praise from God and not from man. And that's our intro to this sort of this closing discussion that's going to be a little bit challenging for for many of us. There's there's a guy that I got to study fairly extensively during my master's program at ASU. His name is Gordon Alport. Gordon Alport was uh, a, a, a scholar and an academic of the highest level. He had a PhD in, in uh, clinical psychology, research psychology, uh, and he was at Harvard University. And he was at Harvard uh, in the 40s, about the late 40s, uh, into the 70s. He was there for quite some time. And he's fairly renowned, and you can look him up on the internet, and it's easy to find this stuff. Uh, But he loved to research human behavior. He loved to do this. He was a psychologist. But he especially loved to research human behavior as it related to theology, doctrine, and teaching. He loved to research human behavior as it relates to religious texts and how we respond to them. And, and he wasn't just concerned with biblical faith, but with all faith systems, but really his passion was with biblical application of his research. That's where he was at his best. He was a key player in the development of trait theory, which trait theory uh, seeks to measure and understand and explain what are the things that motivate us to be the people that we are. What are the things that, that drive us to behave the way we are, to attach ourselves to what we attach ourselves to, and to take on the identity that we do? And he developed an understanding in the midst of all of this research of faith according to what he termed intrinsic faith and extrinsic faith, and intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation for how and why we attach ourselves to a particular religion and faith system. And it's really interesting stuff. Uh, here's, here's the thing that I love the most about, that, that I pulled out of this, okay? How many of you have ever heard of the 2080 rule? 2080 rule. It's pretty common inside of uh, church work. Uh, we, p- people in church work talk about this all the time. Here's what the 2080 rule is. By the way, it's common anywhere in virtually any organization, Okay, but here's the 2080 rule. It's the idea that it seems like about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people tend to give 80% of the money. Okay, so Gordon Alport knew of this and he he decided, I'm going to really look into it using this template. I'm going to look into it and see if that's true. And what he discovered is that it's not true. He said, it's really not true. He said, it's more like 1585 or 1090. 
And he said, here's why. And he, and he, and he goes into an elaborate explanation as to why. He says the problem is, is that most people practice what he calls extrinsic Christianity. Extrinsic meaning outward Christianity, which is what Paul is essentially talking about here in this paragraph. Uh, extrinsic people of faith are motivated primarily by what other people think. They're motivated by a desire to look good, but not by the goodness itself. They're motivated by a desire to be a part of something, but not necessarily to do anything to help. Let me see if this illustration helps you with that part of it. Um, How many of you, when you were in high school and college, you loved it? You loved it when the teacher or the instructor or the professor said, listen, one of the requirements in this class is that you're going to do a group study project. Yeah, you hated that, didn't you? You know why? Because you knew that meant you were going to do all the work and everybody else was going to get the credit, right? I wouldn't think that any of the people who do none of the work and then put their name on the paper are in this room right now. You're all the people that did all the work, right? But right, don't you? Is it, I, I present this in my classes at Paradise Valley Community Church and you can just see the people going, oh, why did I sign up for this class? I hope I can get my money back. He's got a stinking group project. That means lots of work for me and no work for somebody else. It's somebody who wants to attach their name to something, a paper, and get all the credit, but they don't want to participate in it. See, extrinsic Christians think that their salvation is somehow attached to an association or a sign or a marking. They attend church, and they often enjoy the benefits of attending a church or an association with a church. You know, there are benefits. We get to network here. We have friends, we have business contacts, we have leads, we have stuff that we can do with you guys outside and and, and with each other outside of the context of of hearing the gospel proclaimed. Sometimes there's a certain prestige or status that comes with attending uh, something or or being a part of something that's bigger than they are. Um, Church is certainly a place where you can be known by others and served by others, but for the extrinsic Christian, that's as far as it goes. They're not so concerned about knowing others and serving others themselves. And and here's something that Alport points out. He says, on the occasion that the extrinsic Christian uh, does actually serve, what they'll do is they'll make sure that they serve in something that is short-lived or temporary, but, but has a lot of access to other people seeing it. So they'll show up for a couple of hours on a Saturday afternoon to do something in the middle of a bunch of other people seeing them do that, but they'll never commit to any sort of obscure service or ministry behind the scenes that involves a lot of hard work and no fanfare, no popularity, and no exaltation because of their work. That's what the extrinsic uh, Christian does. Rarely do they participate in those things. They're in it for the benefits, but not... The investment, they are a part of the 85%. Alport goes so far as to even say that there's a pathology to some extrinsic Christians in that they take the good that God has done for them and somehow try to turn it into a tool for their own glory. They take the good that God has done for them and somehow try to turn it into a tool for their own glory, not God's glory. Now, right away, I I know that some of you are like, well, does, does that mean an extrinsic Christian is even a Christian at all? Well, yes and no. It depends. There are certainly extrinsic Christians who really are Christians. They're just not down the road yet of sanctification. Uh, the gospel hasn't worked a particular way in their, white, in their life yet. I, I, I can tell you, I've been a Christian 28 years, and if you look at the first three to four or five years of my Christianity, you would go, 
eh, I'm not sure if he's really saved. It took a while for some of this stuff to really kick in and for me to really understand it and for the Spirit to work in a way that I wasn't battling so much. I still battle with the Spirit. We all do. But, but I, I certainly yield to Him a lot more today than I ever did in the past. And, and there, is, there is evidence of sanctification in my life. But I'll tell you, early on, I, I, I don't know that you could have made the argument that I knew Jesus. But there are, seriously, some extrinsic Christians who really don't know Jesus. They really think that Christianity is about the signs, the symbols, the markings, and the associations. They really think it's about t-shirts and bumper stickers. And that's it. They have no concept of the inward reality of the resurrected Christ transforming their lives and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Paul is trying to get at in verse 29 of this paragraph. And so he says, listen, these marks, these symbols, they're not going to save you. So for the person who says, look, I am a part of the covenant people. I don't take the covenant very seriously. I mean, come on, really. But I am a part of the people. He's saying, you better watch out. There's no rational, logical, biblical evidence of your salvation. I've been circumcised. I'm in. Not necessarily. I'm a part of a church. I'm okay. Maybe not. I've been baptized. Great. Do you know Jesus? I take the Lord's Supper. Do you know Jesus? I've been confirmed. Do you know Jesus? I can recite a verse too. Do you know Jesus? Has it transformed your life or is at least in the process of of starting to transform your life? Paul would say to us, it's better to be transformed than confirmed. That's for sure. Now, the intrinsic Christian. The intrinsic Christian, the, the word intrinsic means from deep inside. That's the Christian who really gets it. Uh, for instance, they understand the meaning of the word worship. The, the word worship in, in the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, and in the Greek, in the New Testament, both of those words at their roots literally mean sacrificial service. You serve by sacrificing something. That's what the word worship means. Worship is not a commodity for consumers to go around purchasing and critiquing. Worship is something that you give to the only one who deserves it, and that is God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. It is not about spiritual goods and services. Intrinsic Christians get that. Intrinsic Christians gladly serve with little fanfare, never worrying about who's looking. They give away way more than their fair share in life, both in service and in money. And it doesn't bother them. They're the people that know that there's always going to be the few that carry the many. They understand when Jesus says, die to yourself daily, pick up your cross and follow me. They're the ones who, as Sean said last week, wear their crosses on their back rather than around their neck. They're the Christians who are in the process of their lives being transformed by the gospel. They are the true circumcision. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in these outward markings because our faith is from the inside. And so here you go. It's going to get really thick right now. The gig is up. Are you extrinsic or intrinsic? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Are you playing or are you staying? That's an important question that all of us should be asking ourselves. Our culture is filled, filled with people who love shallowness, 
who loved to be superfluous, who loved to glide over the surface of things but never go deep. Our, our, our culture is, is filled with people who, who love to trivialize the serious and then get really serious about what is trivial. And you just know inherently that that is true. But God is different. God is calling us to something deeper and better. God is calling us to say, look what Jesus did. Look what Jesus did on the cross. That wasn't superfluous. That wasn't shallow. He put everything he had into that for you and for me. Here you go. This is what God wants. He wants us deep. He wants us with roots. He wants our waters to run very deep. He wants us to focus and spend time to to love Him and to get to know Him and to understand who Jesus is and be guided by the Holy Spirit. He wants us deep, but He also wants us deeply. The reason He wants us deep is because He has a deep love for us Himself. He wants us deeply. He gave everything He had, His Son, so that He could have us. He wants us deeply. He also wants us holy. H-O-L-Y. He wants us holy. He wants you and I to pursue holiness in our lives. He wants us to pursue it ourselves on our own. He wants us to pursue it in community, in our RCs, in our families with our spouses, with our friends. He wants us to pursue holiness. He wants us to be transformed by the resurrected Christ living in us, guided by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit giving us discernment about life and testing the spirits that come into our life. He wants us to pursue holiness by the power of His Son, Jesus Christ. But He also wants us holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y. He wants us all. He wants us deeply. He's given everything He has for us, so He wants all of us as well. He wants us holy. That's how deeply He loves us. That's how much He cares for us. When you talk about the love of God, it isn't just this this fun little warm, fuzzy feeling that we get in our culture today. It is something that He gave up everything for and He asks us to come to Him and go deep and pursue holiness. And by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can do that. By the love that He's given us through His Son, we can do that. Our response to the gospel is to pursue Him back. He's pursued us and given everything for us. We should pursue Him back. The gospel represents tremendous love for us, but it also represents tremendous challenge. And I know that means self-evaluation. And I know that's hard. I get that. Listen, when I start to do self-evaluation and I ask myself some of these tough questions, I get it. I don't want to answer them. And if I do answer them, I'm pretty good at coming up with reasons and denials and excuses and arguments for why I'm really okay. Ruthless self-examination, ruthless self-evaluation is uncomfortable. And it's especially uncomfortable because I'm going to challenge you in this because I know it's true in my own life. Because if I only go to myself for my self-evaluation, I can argue myself out of needing to change things and needing to listen to the Holy Spirit about things. You need to invite other people into your life to be able to do that. You need to give them permission to talk to you. We all have blind spots in our life. They're blind to us. 
but other people can see them. And you need to let them speak into your life. I know that's painful. I know that's hard. I know how important it is to open myself up to that criticism and that input, but I also know that at the end of that, after the pain, is healing and a better place to be because that's where God calls us. He calls us there by the power of His gospel through His Son, Jesus Christ. I know this is hard, but we can do it if we know the Son, we know the Father, and are guided by the Holy Spirit. We're going to pray together, and Josh is going to come and lead us in our time of reflection. And I would just encourage you to think very seriously about this evaluation. By the way, let me say this. This is not a pitch to increase volunteerism at Redemption Arcadia. It really isn't. That would be awful and manipulative. This is really about you just going home and getting into yourself with Jesus and finding out about who you really are. We all need to do that. Let me pray. God, thank you for uh, your love and your grace and mercy as exemplified through your son, Jesus Christ, and the challenge that that brings us. God, thank you. I just, I just pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to, to go and do this work now by the power of your spirit, guiding us and giving us discernment, giving us your wisdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.